And welcome back to Butter With That, a Philadelphia movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together and talk about movies. Uh, I'm here with Connor and Dave, and we are amidst our grab bag month where we've been focusing on movies that we haven't really gotten an opportunity to talk about, but wanted to bring to the table. And so far, we've had a wonderful assortment of, of different uh, types of movies and, and fun, various different conversations uh, without the form of a theme, which has been a lot of fun. But before we dive into this week's episode uh, of uh, our grab bag pick, just want to check in with folks. How's everyone doing? Have we watched anything exciting, not exciting recently? What's on our What's on our movie mind? I watched something new, which is exciting, given everything that's happened in the past year and a half. Uh, I watched James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, which premiered in theaters and on HBO Max on the same day. And overall, I really liked it. I definitely want to give it a second watch before it leaves HBO Max in a few weeks. Um, I don't want to say too much because it just came out, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Big fan of James Gunn, as we know from the podcast. And I think I thought overall it was really enjoyable. I also saw it on opening night, which I didn't realize. <laughs> Friends of mine were just like, let's watch The Suicide Squad. And I was like, fuck my life. No. But then I watched it and I was like, oh, I'm having a blast. This I don't think I knew. I, I didn't hadn't heard about the rollout. I was like, oh, I would rather watch this or like in the hands of um, what's his name? Gun. I keep wanting to say Tim Gunn. James Gunn. James Gunn. In the hands of James Gunn, I was like, ah, you know, I, I, I enjoyed um, Guardians of the Galaxy. So this, my, this should be fun. And indeed, it was a lot of fun. So. Yeah, I think I'll be checking that one out also. It's gotten, you know, pretty high marks from uh, a lot of people. And it sounds like it's a good deal more interesting and a lot more fun than uh, the original Suicide Squad we were treated to. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it in that sense. Uh, that's very least I don't think it could be too much worse than that one. So uh, I'm sure it'll be an improvement either way. This actually feel, it feels like a movie this time. Like you have characters and you have themes and you have interesting characters talking to each other involving said themes um, with some really great action. And it's just shot very well. So I feel like I don't know. For me, the 2016 Suicide Squad is like a one out of 10. So this had a pretty low bar to cross. And I think it, it um, thoroughly leapt over it. Yeah, it it it, it definitely was a, was had a lot of levity to it, even though it was extremely like graphic, but like in a fun, like in a funny kind of over the top way, which was was fun. Um, there were some of the so t- chapters are like marked by or or titled have little title cards and the ti- he he gets very creative with various title cards where it'll be like drawn in the sand or like emerge from a pool of blood but i felt like i was like this feels like if wes anderson was in charge of like <laughs> a suicide squad movie <laughs> like having cutesy mm-hmm. little title cards for each chapter like growing out of the foliage like the jungle foliage but anywho, yeah, I recommend it. it it's it's a, fun, a fun ride. I watched, so I hadn't seen Dirty Dancing in a very long time. And I was like, so I've been watching some, like doing 
other themed movie months with a group of friends and we wanted to watch summer movies and we're like, what movie is a summer movie? And I was like, well, Dirty Dancing is like in the summer. They're like a, they were like a Catskills camp. We watched it. It's so good. I don't think I like fully realized how good Dirty Dancing is and how much of a talent um, Patrick Swayze is and was. Um, He's just, ugh. So sexy and such a great dancer. So that was my big surprise of the week. I've never seen Dirty Dancing. Get on it. It's so good. It's so good. Have you, Dave, seen any anything of note recently? Not really of note. No, I mean, uh, I went. I've been going down a weird rabbit hole um, of like information and research, just uh, with. God, this sounds weird to say. Uh, just, you know, the, the coming anniversary of September 11th. Uh, so I watched um, 102 Minutes That Changed America, a documentary that is um, uh, almost like a found footage documentary. It's it's kind of cobbled together from eyewitness accounts and uh, is absent narration, just sort of like a, an assembled timeline of, um, of witnessed events from different points of view uh, as the day unfolded. And... Um, you know, pretty, uh, a pretty difficult documentary, but really, really well made. Uh, so one that I would recommend if you're interested in that subject, uh, one that I really would not recommend if you're interested in that subject is the other movie that I watched loose change, which is sort of a, one of the nine 11 truther documentaries, kind of the big iconic one, um, which I found to be, uh, pretty repugnant and annoying. One thing that was really funny was after watching that, I watched uh, the, re- the one of the lead researchers and uh, the director and editor and narrator of that film, Loose Change, uh, go up against the uh, the editors of Popular Mechanics magazine on Democracy Now! in 2006. You can find some video of this online, and it's just very telling how unprofessional these two guys are in defending their nonsense and uh and how quickly popular mecha- the editors of popular mechanics are aptly able to shut down their counter arguments and their uh quote unquote supporting evidence uh so yeah i don't know i i find uh 911 truther things to be particularly cloying in the sense that uh the the stated objective of exposing that kind of thing is always that it let the event was a, a catalyst leading us into forever wars and a, allowing that the government could have us compromise our civil liberties for the sake of uh, for the sake of security, which is what happened anyway. So I, I don't know why you have to make stuff up on top of all that uh, necessarily. But yeah, I, I don't know. I found it to be uh, pretty useless, but an interesting uh, companion piece to a very good documentary on the subject. If I may ask, what does loose change refer to? I I don't know much about this discredited documentary. I don't I don't recall. Um, I just remember like certain details of the stuff that they were saying because it was it's it's just throwing so much stuff at the wind and hoping that something sticks without any real basis. Uh, and it, it also like heavily manipulates like uh, refer references to um, like eyewitness accounts in the moments that it happened like extemporaneously like before anyone knew what was going on and like you know it's like oh my god people heard explosions so that means it was a bomb instead of a plane just because that one person didn't see the plane and millions of others did you know that kind of thing so but what about the t- like what is the title the title i don't remember i don't oh, remember okay. how it refers yeah. to it yeah 
<sighs> well, yeah. Sounds like I shouldn't watch it, but. I would say no. Nine, uh, but yeah. uh, 100 and, uh, 102 Minutes is a great documentary, but it's very, uh, very taxing. Mm-mm-mm. I think it's interesting that we're on the, this is the 10th anniversary of 9-11, that I wonder in the future. We're at the. Oh, no. Time flies, tw- Connor. Oh, no, you're right. 20. <laughs> no. I remember that because at the 10th anniversary, uh, my housemate and I were invited to the stupid party where uh, everyone was hunkered around the TV watching Loose Change, and he and I both just crushed beers and laughed at them. Whoa. <laughs> so 20 years ago, yeah, so 20th anniversary, I wonder in the future what, you know, cinematically folks are going to do, directors, producers, studios, with 9-11 as a cultural moment, and I don't know. It's just an interesting event that has not been, just curious to see how future generations will make it a cinematic moment if they try to, or just something I was thinking about. I mean, look to a lot of superhero movies. They, they recreate that kind of thing. Pretty, pretty on the nose, which I, it's one of the things I find distasteful about a lot of superhero movies, but. Well, I guess in the vein of, of global disaster, terrorism, and, uh, you know, that's actually a very good segue. Yeah. Political, like, defining geopolitical moments. Uh, this movie is not a de- defining, uh, it says this movie that we're about to talk about says little to nothing <laughs> of, of consequence about any of these issues, but it's vaguely dances around them. So today we're going to talk about a subject very near and dear to my heart. Uh, we're going to talk about mission impossible fallout number six and also shed some light on the Mission Impossible franchise as a whole. Um, I, if you've been listening to our other episodes, I'm sure one, like once out of every five or six episodes, I mention Mission Impossible <laughs> because I just have to. Um, I picked Min- Mission Impossible Fallout because it's one of my favorite in the entire series. And uh, also because I think it's a great way to kind of talk about the Mission Impossible franchise as a whole and its kind of legacy and how it's kind of unique, in my opinion, to be a series of movies of six movies that just kept getting better or more popular. Now, Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible 1996, the very first, is really, really good, Um, Mm -hmm. but... John Woo's number two. We all kind of know what happened in number two and number three <laughs> kind of declining. And then it sort of reignited. And especially with Christopher McQuarrie, who uh, did number five, he did number six, and he's going to uh, direct number seven. In the hands of Christo- Christopher McQuarrie, I think Mission Impossible really found its its rhythm as being a, uh, a movie series that is – has a lot of different plots and twists and turns that don't really matter. Ultimately, it's watching Tom Cruise do death-defying stunts and really watching um, wonderfully fast-paced and uh, rhythmically kinetic action sequences. Um, And I think Fallout really showcases the best of McQuarrie's contributions to the Mission Impossible franchise. So for those who are uh, not familiar with the movie, yeah, directed, written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, uh, starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. um, And 
what I like about this movie and what I like about the franchise in general as well is that it also keeps his main core team together. Now, number one, he had a whole different team. Actually, no, from Ving Rhames was there from the very beginning. Uh, and, but I love that Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames and, um, Vanessa, uh, or excuse me, Rebecca Ferguson's character, Ilsa Faust, They've been in them for a couple of the movies and the number six really keeps them together while also introducing a couple new compelling characters. So just to give you a quick synopsis before we talk about the movie, Mission Impossible 6 is somewhat of a sequel to Mission Impossible 5. We're introduced in 5 to the um, the villain Solomon Lane, who's the leader of this terrorist organization, uh, the syndicate. And so in number six, Agent Ethan Hunt and his team are tasked with tracking down three stolen plutonium cores before they fall in the hands of a terrorist organization, the Syndicate, and its members who call themselves the Apostles. The leader of the Syndicate, Solomon Lane, was caught in MI5. However, in a series of twists and turns, he escapes capture once again and aims to destroy the world with a nuclear explosion. So in this movie also, Ethan is assigned by the CIA a new partner named August Walker, uh, played by Henry Cavill, uh, who poses, yes, with this mustache, we will uh, go uh, talk about in detail later on. Uh, and August Walker is a cold, formidable foil to Ethan Hunt's do-gooder savior complex. But, dun-dun-dun, can we trust August Walker? Spoiler alert, no, we can't. <laughs> but And it's pretty clear um, at the onset that, that that's yeah. where that's going, honestly, but yes. Um, so that's, a that's kind of the, the movie. Um, but what's great about the Mission Impossible series is that, as I said before, you don't really have to catch all of the intricacies of the plot and intricacy is a generous word. It's more just, they shoved too many twists <laughs> that couldn't quite flesh out. But the great thing is that you really don't need to know. It's, it's, yeah, I guess it's some, somewhat of a MacGuffin. You know, it's like, oh, what do we have to find? What do we have to fix? What do we have to, like, prevent from happening? And it just follows a same formula. Cool location across the world, a little bit of exposition and dialogue to set up a scene, and then an unbelievable stunt. And that's really what this movie is, just one new location, one unbelievable stunt after another. Um, so enough of my, uh, exposition, Connor, Dave, what is your relationship with Mission Impossible? Um, any background? Have you seen any of the Mission Impossibles? What was it like either watching this movie for the first time or returning to this movie and Tom Cruise's vanity project? <laughs> so that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've seen all of them, um, most of them multiple times. This one I've seen, I think, <clears throat> probably uh, second most times, uh, second most frequently after the first one. Uh, the first one I really, really love. I think it's a really great standalone movie that um, that doesn't have those kind of the, the kind of trappings that the series became uh, established through. Like, I think. Christine, as you described, this sort of like, uh, you know, new location, new action set piece, and then move on. 
Um, that that really kind of sort of wasn't, wasn't my read on the first movie. The first movie is really pretty coherent and has a very strong narrative. Um, so I found it to be a much tighter and, in my opinion, better film than the others in that regard. It's also a little more self-serious than the other ones. The other ones become a little bit more not campy but like you know very very fun and rambunctious and like ruckus and uh you know encourages you more in a winking way to have fun in in almost like a meta way that in a way that is self-aware that it's a movie franchise um but the first installment i found to be really really great and would recommend to anybody uh second one as we discussed uh that's uh john woo's contribution is pretty clunky uh and pretty bad uh See it, see it if only for the Limp Biscuit version of the Mission Impossible theme song, though. Uh, then we move on to the third one, which is pretty cool. Uh, I think it has its moments. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a great villain in it. Um, the fourth one, um, if I'm remembering correctly, that is Ghost Protocol. That one's pretty fun. And that, again, sort of establishes this director's uh, sort of more... Uh, yeah, more like action set piece, rolling action set pieces kind of vibe and and chemistry and uh, and narrative pacing, and maintains that through the the fourth, fifth, and now sixth installment. So um, it's definitely a franchise that has gone through several changes, but I think remains pretty pretty interesting throughout, with the exception maybe of the second movie. Returning to this one uh, was pretty great because uh, I initially approached it. Having seen it several times, thinking like, all right, here we go again. I'm going to have to, you know, let's sit down. I'm going to write my notes. I'm going to do my job here. And I'm just going to like, you know, try to try to prepare for the episode. Um, so I wasn't really necessarily looking forward to it at the time. Um, even even up to the moment that I sat down, which really bummed my housemate out. He was walking by and was like, oh, watching Mission Impossible 6 right now. huh?" And I was like, yeah. To which he's a big fan of specifically that one. And I was like, really? That's. You don't sound very excited about it. That's kind of sad. And then I started the movie and it was like, maybe like 10 minutes in and was like, okay, yeah, here we go, here we go, here we go. And then by like 20 minutes in, it was like, oh yeah, okay, here we go. And then by the end, it was just like, yes, yes. So, you know, it it, it really, it, it not it's not only more re- rewarding with rewatches, but it's also just an adrenaline rush each time. Um, so I would say uh, definitely an enjoyable movie and one of the better in the series. I'd say maybe the second best after, after the first, in my opinion. Cool. Thanks, Dave. How about you, Connor? So I have never seen a Mission Impossible movie. I know next to nothing except um, in the, I guess it's the second one. Tom Cruise gets his mission from sunglasses and then he throws them off of a cliff and they explode. It's like as much shit as people give this as number two. There's so many iconic scenes from that movie that like stick in people's memory. The cliff uh, climbing or like rock climbing. Um... The lighting in air off of motorcycles. Yeah, the motor seat. Yeah, it's like it's like John Woo knew how to set up a few things that he knew would just be imprinted in the brain, but like couldn't pull off an entire movie. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead, Connor. (laughs) And so I I don't really know anything about the franchise. It's never been. I I actually think Tom Cruise is is a good actor when given the right material, and he's usually pretty good about picking his projects. Um, and so I don't know, but it's just like never. Never really thought to see it. The sixth one did interest me. Um, I also enjoy Henry Cavill. And so I was like interested to see it, but I just never got around to the theaters to see it. And then I never thought of it after it left theaters. And then when you suggested doing Mission Impossible, I was like, well, I think that'd be fun if I didn't go in kind of seeing any. Um, you recommended trying to watch a few, but 
the way the week worked out, I just didn't have time to watch any. And I really feel like I didn't miss much coming in blind to the sixth one in the series, which is an interesting feat to pull off. Um, the action generally kind of speaks for itself. Characters are brought in previously, but I felt like I would, you know, who were in previous films, but I felt like I was caught up to speed right away. I feel like the movie set up emotional stakes pretty clearly. And I don't quite know how I feel about Henry Cavill's John Walker or what, um, August Walker, August Walker. August yeah. Walker. But you'd never um, know because I don't think August is said, said like said once it's always just Walker. <laughs> That one's just for the Jets to Brazil fan, fans of uh, Autumn Walker, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, overall, I thought this movie was really enjoyable. I kind of went in being like, I don't really know what to expect. I'm going to keep my expectations low. I just don't really know what you know what's like going to go in. And there's, a, I'm sure we'll talk about it, you know, a moment where there's a, I feel like the first big twist when I catch one of the nuclear scientists. And from that moment, I feel like I was really hooked in the movie. That's when it grabbed its claws of me. Wolf Blitzer tore his face off. I texted Christine about that. Um, and then that was a good introduction to the mass. I feel like it did a really good job of catching new audiences up to speed. And, you know, judging by the worldwide box office, most of these films have been incredibly successful, just sort of achieving the success on its own with Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, being the highest budgeted one at 178 million and making almost 800 million dollars at the worldwide box office. So they clearly know what to do. And I was hooked and will probably now go watch uh, the original, you know, the previous entries. I recently watched all of them pretty cl- close together. And while I was watching this one, I was kept, it kept reminding me of previous scenes from movies and i think ultimately maybe my devotion to the franchise will be such that i'll just make my own compilation of all of my favorite scenes from every movie and just turn it into like its own um its own movie but um something i remember connor you were pointing out in our text exchange about the movie and that was i'll jump to the end really quick like the fake out sun that that emerges and you think that maybe they didn't um succeed and that the world was going to explode like explode in this nuclear disaster oh, but so you just you talking- see it's oh, the glow of the sun hmm? okay no no go ahead and uh it just reminded me that i i when doing research for this episode looked up who the cinematographer was and it's the guy f- who's worked with um, Alex Garland, Rob Hardy, and he did the cinematography in uh, Annihilation. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, the movie looks way different than Annihilation, but there are a lot of moments. And Connor, your com- your comment about the sun made me think and look out for moments where you really see sort of that radioactive glimmer the way it's shot with the sun, the rave scene has a lot of elements of like yellows and oranges uh, that are kind of glowing and pulsing. So I thought that was kind of like your comment definitely put that in my brain. Um, And then I made the connection that, oh, wow, the guy who shot Annihilation did this movie as well. But um, also, J.J. Abrams has his hands in this, which is why there are lens flares all over the goddamn place. Okay, what? Okay, because J.J. Abrams did Ghost Protocol, which I think is my least favorite, and I and I hate it because of the J.J. Abrams filter. 
But now that maybe, mm, so he had his hand in this one too. I think he was attached as a producer or something, mm-hmm. or at right. the very that least, he went through Bad Robot, his production company. Okay, all right, that I get that makes sense. But Ghost Protocol definitely has that like early to or like mid two thousands green blue J.J. Abrams filter, <laughs> and it's rough. But but yeah, I guess. I don't have too many questions per se about the movie, but are there some favorite, um, are there some standout scenes or characters that really like stuck with you or ones that you wanted to highlight as we kind of pick apart Mission Impossible? One aspect of the characters in this film that I appreciated was kind of how small scale the characters were. I guess, I don't know if small scale is the right word, but I guess how like cohesive and tight they were, I imagined that there would be like 20 characters that are with MIF that we're going to interact with some wacky ones, some serious ones, uh, that this would be like a big ensemble film, but it's really, you know, MIF as we know them is just in this film is just a handful of people. Um, and I think I thought Simon Pegg was going to maybe his Simon Peggness was going to overshadow the seriousness or, you know, the tone of the whole movie, but I feel like he, his, you know, comedic lines are sort of peppered in. I was just really impressed with, I feel like they knew the writing, I feel like was really on point of when characters need to say what, the tone that needs to be applied. And so I was just sort of impressed with the balance of, you know, the antagonistic forces and then the IMF forces I thought was really kind of really well done. I think that's a great thought. The idea of a small ensemble where still the movie is jumping from location to location. So it's like a huge, the movie's huge in scope as far as the, like them going to a bunch of different cities and, and picturesque places and natural landscape. But yet the characters that you're really following are a very small set of characters. Um, and I guess that's, yeah, I guess that balance kind of works out because it, Like, I feel like you'd be drowning in characters if they met a new person every single locate, like new location. But but as I mentioned before, something I really love is that Tom Cruise, like like Ethan Hunt has his team. I mean, Luther and Benji have been there from like movies one and two. Um, And by four, they tried to introduce Jeremy Renner and he stayed on for four and five but I hated him. <laughs> and I was uh, another reason I really like this movie is they they shed him. Now, I read in the production notes that they were intentional they were intending on including him in this movie, but he had shooting conflicts with Marvel and Hawkeye and all like like movies and all that. Um, but I think it was a fortunate uh, scheduling conflict because that allowed them to introduce, uh, Henry Walker, or excuse me, <laughs> Henry Cavill as August Walker. And Connor, you mentioned that you were like kind of not, you're kind of on the fence as far as whether you liked him as a new character. I thought it was a really smart move to to kind of position Tom Cruise next to this like hulking, hot, sweaty, like fighter who like, yeah, with this like mustache and this five o'clock shadow, you know, all of the, this, this very different type. 
um, because it kind of adds a different vibe and feel to that dynamic. You know, for previous movies, Tom Cruise is the one you focus on. He's, he's the like supposed compelling male lead. I don't find him to be a, Ethan Hunt to be a compelling character at all. (laughs) And so I guess what adds to kind of the dynamism of these characters is not the way they're written per se and the depth that they have, but like how they play off each other. And I think there's some key scenes where like the physicality between Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise plays off really, really well. And, uh, and they, they have great energy. I mean, this, the scene, the halo dive, the high altitude diving scene, uh, is, is amazing. Um, and that's just, that's just them too. I'm glad you brought up that scene because, one thing that I appreciate about this film is, you know, just there's all these little sort of character moments that help us inform kind of their attitude, who they are, you know, what they're doing. And I think what's great, I was like, really like Henry Cavill said nothing almost up until they get into the plane. Then Tom Cruise explains a little bit what this kind of jump is and, you know, the suit and the oxygen. And then right before, you know, he, Tom Cruise is going to jump out. He sees lightning. He goes back and says, Oh, I don't think we can do this now. Henry Cavill, pulls out his oxygen tube. It's like, oh, you're not afraid of little lightning, are you, Ethan? And then jumps out, basically. Then Ethan puts his tube back in. They jump out. Lightning strikes Cavill and uh, Cruz. And then his oxygen tube goes undone. And then there's this great, I think it's all done in one shot, where he has to, like, midair, put the tube back in him and get his oxygen going, give him his tank, all while the sun, uh, the sound cuts out when they're struck by lightning. And so I think there's I just a lot of, like... Moment. Mm-hmm. That was like, and overall, the sound design I thought was really strong in the film. And so it's just sort of like nothing complex or earth shattering, but sort of like set up and payoff. I feel like there were quite a few moments where just some basic screenwriting tricks can help something feel more fleshed out. So that sequence had to be shot in three separate parts, but it's it's edited so fluidly. It really does look like uh, one full motion. So the first shot had to be the jump, the actual jump is Tom Cruise is leaving the back of the plane and the cameraman has to be in front of him falling out as well, which is so incredible. Cause I, you know, it's like you're so focused on Tom Cruise's movement. But while I was watching that scene this most recent time, I was focused on what a camera person having to capture that has to do. And he has to dive within three feet of the camera person to get that movement that like downward movement. So that had to be the first sequence. The second part of that sequence had to be, they shot, it had to be the connection as Ethan is trying to, to fly over to Walker. And then the third sequence had to be as he's actually attaching his oxygen, oxygen tube to, to Walker. So I it, reports say that Tom Cruise had to do it like a hundred or like, or there were a hundred jumps. I don't know if Tom Cruise himself was doing all hundred, but uh, in total, it was a very, very time intensive uh, sequence to, to get right. Um, especially since it, that initial part couldn't be one shot. It had to, it was broken up into multiple parts. Was that um, sequence generally like filmed as people are jumping out of a plane and or was that like part of it real plane and part of it like a studio? All of, from what I believe, all of the shots were in midair. They trained, like if you see other skydiving movies, uh, like 
there's the, they have the sort of air funneling up. I'm not sure what it's called, but they're hovering above um, some sort of air device and they're shot that way. And I think they trained that way, but I think all of the midair and again, listeners, you do your research, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, all of it was midair, sh- midair shooting. Now, Henry Cavill didn't do any of his diving. It was a stuntman. And if you notice the second guy who's supposed to be a walker has a very fogged mask, which is convenient so that they don't have to like digitally change the face. The shots were not done over Paris. They were done in, I think, uh, United Arab Emirates. Yeah. So they had to CGI the, the landscape, um, and turn it into a a Parisian night sky. But they shot it at twilight because the shot is supposed to be right before a party. So they only had a very limited amount of time every day to like, to shoot it. Um, Which I think, you know, it's like every Mission Impossible movie that comes out, it's always like the, the, the lore, the myth, the legend, you know, about the production and all the hiccups. And I like to get caught up into that, but I know that it's just a production trick or like a studio trick, you know, generate interest by like creating stories behind all these stunts. But I find it a fun kind of thing to follow while the mission impossibles come out and to follow the stories that emerge from the behind the scenes stunts and the snafus that happen. Um, I mean, it's pretty incredible throughout the movie to see Tom Cruise go to these, these lengths, these lengths as both an actor and his own stunt man. And it allows for so few CG composited shots. Um, it really it it makes the final product that much more convincing and that much more harrowing to know that he really committed himself to these projects uh, with that much fervor. And and I think you're correct in describing the franchise to a degree as a vanity project for Tom Cruise, but uh, one that is pretty well earned. I mean, I think it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, the feats that he achieves and the stunts that he performs within these movies. I mean, the one where he's um, <clears throat> a little, little later into the film when he's giving chase and he's jumping from rooftop to rooftop, the one that is the longest uh, distension between one building and another, he kind of smashes into the building and barely gets his grip. Uh, he actually broke his ankle during that shot, and that's the shot that they used. And And it's also like a pretty bold idea as far as uh, expense for a movie goes, because the insurance for the, that these movies has to be out of this world. But um, I, I, you got to hand it to him. I mean, kudos for, for going the extra mile to make it that much more convincing by literally doing all these things himself. I watched a close up because yeah, uh, of the other camera angle and you see he, it's like he hits the wall and he his ankle presses in and smooshes down. Mm-hmm. They had to pause production for nine weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. And and actually, the follow-up shot, as you said, Dave, they kept that only shot because Tom Cruise was like, I've broken my fucking ankle. We're not doing this again. And you see him limping away. And so there's this sort of, for him, not wonderful, but for the viewer, this sort of wonderful um, moment of sort of, Tom Cruise fallibility like and I, and I was reading some reviews of the movie and a lot of people point out that another compelling aspect of this movie is the fact that you do see Tom Cruise in moments showing his age and I feel like throughout his career Tom Cruise is used to being positioned as the hero as as this 
this sort of larger than life superhuman being uh and that at 56 when he f- shot this you know there are moments where he shows like he's not the man he used to be which for a character standpoint is actually interesting and cool and henry cavill i think's presence a younger guy also kind of like reinforces that sort of aging component, which is interesting. But just to kind of like another th- thing I came across, I, this review uh, of the movie, uh, AA dad's review in the AV club, I think really summed up my thoughts of Tom Cruise um, saying converting all of his vanity mania and pathological need to amaze into kinetic energy. Cruise makes hunt, not only just a remarkable force, of pure determination, but also a kind of slapstick comic figure. And I think that's such a wonderful way of articulating this, this range of like him wanting to be ultimate hero, but the intensity through which he channels it become turns into sort of comic spectacle in like a, like a, a fun, a fun way. Um, And so I'm just excited to see, yeah, what more he does in seven. So we talked about the high altitude jump, which was definitely one of the, um, focused on stunts when the movie came out. Um, and is one of the most impressive, definitely. Are there any other scenes that really stood out, um, either for their stunts or the way that they were edited? I brought it up earlier, but the scene that first hooked me was when I guess there's this nuclear scientist who's part of the syndicate or whatever, I guess he releases the plutonium cores or sells them. I'm not, I kind of forget exactly his machinations. He was part of designing the, what would be the explosive device. So he was an important scientist that was part of the syndicate or part of the apostles. Got it. So anyway, they capture, they, so they capture this guy who designed the bombs. And He also um, has the, sorry, he also has the codes, the essential codes that you need to be able to disarm the bombs. And so we open up, you know, the film opens with Cruz losing the plutonium cores and then because he wants to save Luther's life. And so then it cuts to you hear, you know, Wolf Blitzer on CNN saying, oh, Israel, Rome, you know, these places have been explode, you know, nuclear bombs have gone off. And then they, you know, the guy wants to have his statement read on air. And then it's revealed that this is actually all a setup. It wasn't actually Wolf Blitzer. He tears his face off and it's Simon Pegg who's doing it setting up the face reveal i thought that was a really clever twist and a really great way of instead of saying oh he's gonna they're gonna blow up these three cities kill these many people you actually see news footage of it and as someone who's new to the mission impossible verse this was like oh this is an interesting way for the movie to start and then it turned it on its head i thought in a really interesting way so that was sort of a scene that kind of hooked me include and i thought was a really great setup for the theatrics that go on with the imf and sort of different tactics that you wouldn't see sort of maybe other action movies that i thought uh, was a really good hook into the movie um angela bassett who plays uh the one of the cia directors uh director sloan has a great line she's like the imf is nothing it's just a bunch of people in masks like like around halloween or like jumping around halloween or something like that just totally reducing all of the imf missions and i think that's such a great line because it really sort of recognizes the theatrics of all of the uh mission all of the missions and I thought of that because in that scene you mentioned, Connor, of the the fake out uh, when they fake out the scientist, 
the lead up to make the scientists think that nuclear nuclear explosion has really happened. Luther and Ethan have to sort of play act their like their sadness and their like sort of anger and state of mourning. And Ethan's like, I'm going to kill you. I can't believe that you've done this, all this. And Luther's like, no, no, it's like, Ethan, it's going to be okay. And so they have to like basically do this whole performance in front of the scientist in order to get him to think the, the end of the world has actually occurred of what he's watching on CNN. And so it's just fun to watch them sort of like lean into that sort of play acting uh, and sort of performative elements of, of, yeah, just assuming different roles that, that aren't really them in reality. I, I also think it's interesting in the sense that like, you know, specifically that, that uh, it, it, that Sloan has that criticism of the IMF um, as, as a fictional organization because the real world IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is basically a uh, uh, an international uh, community of, uh, of of nations that in, induce uh, you know selective uh, financial apartheid on various countries, which is pretty fucked up. Um, but I, I, that's another thing too, like. Uh, all of these other movies really kind of keep the real world at bay as far as reference. And when Wolf Blitzer shows up, it's so clear that this is now our world, our reality. Wolf Blitzer has the same job. This is the world we live in. And I think that that really takes away from this movie, to be honest. I mean, I think, I think the scene is great, but I think having a literal figure from our real world implanted there muddies the waters of this movie a little bit too much, especially the notion that, um, as Alec Baldwin says of Hunt early in the film, uh, you have one flaw in your character where you can't distinguish between a life and the between one life and the lives of millions, which is presented as an admirable admirable thing. But among an international security agent, which probably isn't the job that he should have. So if, if that's the case, uh, and it also kind of like props up the CIA as being pretty heartless in a lot of ways, which I mean. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with, but but it does it does this weird thing where like at the very end of the movie, like it's it's this really weird thing where um Sloan is saying after all the dust has settled, is like, well, you know, that's why we need men like Ethan Hunt, the man that can't distinguish between lo- one life and the life of life civilians, so that we can do our job. So the end of the movie is implying that the CIA is a monstrous like killing machine, <laughs> which is really weird and not something I disagree with, but a really weird tone for a movie. I think that's a totally great point, especially mentioning like the in, the use of Wolf Blitzer in there. And I think it's funny because I think like Wolf Blitzer probably considers himself in the highest light, just like Tom Cruise. So I'm like, <laughs> that's a match made in heaven if I ever saw one. So I find that pretty funny, but I think it also is definitely connects to a great point that you made, David. Like it, it's trying to veer to too much into sort of like maybe real world commentary when the movie has literally nothing to say. <laughs> Especially because like our, our chief villain, like at the end of the movie, um, what's his name? Lane, um, who's kind of behind all these machinations. Um, when, when, when it finally comes to 
to his motivation being really pronounced. I mean, he's he's part of the 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 what is it the, the, the apostles syndicate. and the syndicate. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's the leader of like, the apostles. <laughs> and he he has this whole this whole international plan of like inspiring great loss in order to uh, in order to enact great peace because of the hypocrisy of organizations like the CIA or IMF or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, like the big thing for him is like I've gathered all of Ethan Hunt's friends and former family in this one place to fuck him over with my nuclear holocaust it's like it's sort of like if this is the real world if this is our real world then these sort of like highly specific and vengeful individually vengeful motivations for international terrorists doesn't really hold a lot of weight if it's just about revenge for against one person you know what i mean (laughs) A hundred percent. I agree with you on every single point. And I think, I think that this movie, I think that number five does a great job with not even attempting to really introduce anything connected to like real world consequences or, or issues where this one kind of tries to tread into it. And I, I totally agree that it takes away from, from it because it, it, it like, it doesn't have anything to say. And it's a and, minor and it, criticism. It just complicates. I mean, the still fun, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It's kind of an unnecessary complication that you can see the, you can see the holes in. But I, I guess um, it kind of made me think of like why I still like, I mean, I, I, there are Christopher Nolan movies that I really love, but I kept thinking about like the handling of a movie like Mission Impossible Fallout and like Christopher Nolan, like, like a movie like Inception that wants to be in a bunch of different beautiful cities and wants to do some like sort of jaw, jaw dropping practical effects and, and, and sets and just like amazing stuff. But it's like, Christopher Nolan wants to just shove a bunch of like meaningless meaning into his movies. (laughs) Whereas this movie wants to do jaw dropping spectacle, but like kind of breezily moves past anything that like could be like misidentified as like character development or like, yeah, I, I, I just, I feel like, Mission Impossible is like the inception that I like wanted. Just cool shit is happening without any just like backstory that has no weight to it. It's funny you say that too, because I do have a note that's like, there are so many instances throughout this film that where we do get like inception level expository dialogue, like things where it's like a character says like, this is going to be a particular problem. And then another character is like, Funny you mentioned that problem. I've actually got a solution for it right now that I just figured out, um, which is my big problem with that's the entire kind of like a Inception setup too. That, that, but, that, but, I, I would say that's like that's well, like team assembles, you know, like, and then we're gonna work at, we're gonna talk through what the details are, and then I'm gonna like miraculously have a very simple solution to a really complex problem. Which is exactly my problem with heist movies and my problem with Inception. <laughs> um, but I do think this movie does a better job with that, since unlike Inception, it is more about having fun than it is about those details and and also uh, just another like little note is like the whole thing with uh what is when lane is being transported by the the french police and uh they're 
Tom Cruise has this whole imagination, this fake out imagination of the scenario going down. And like all the music cuts out except for like one sustained note. You see that they're, they're driving this armored police vehicle and it's getting knocked into the river. And I'm just like, Christopher Nolan called, guys. They, they, he made this movie in 2008 already and it's The Dark Knight. Because uh, it's pretty much beat for beat the same sequence. But yeah, um, there are definitely some accusations that McCrary like kind of ripped off Nolan in some key essential like key moments. but i enjoyed this movie more than a lot of nolan movies so uh, i don't know mixed bag in that sense i guess but um but yeah also the heist thing too uh, this movie does reek of that in a lot of ways like when tom cruise I, I again i understand everyone has trackers in their neck and the team is impossibly on top of everything because they're master tacticians but like moments where like tom cruise will like dive into like uh, to escape the french police he dives into like um just some tunnel and it just so happens that the boat uh, with the rest of the team is there right there to catch him or or them like having meticulously planned like all right regardless of where how we're being chased we're going to make sure to go down this one alley and crash the truck blocking our enemies so that we can crawl out and get onto the motorcycles that are feet away it's just like but- it, it kind of beats you over the head with how good they are at it which i can accept as a uh, as just an element of a fun movie but narratively i can't accept yeah, that's the thing. That's Mission Impossible, though. It's, yeah, it's you're right. these these unbelievably precise setups and resolutions of of a heist or or a fight or whatever it is. It's always going to kind of work out pretty pretty seamlessly. Even when things don't work out, it's like we all we we know people are going to make it and everything's going to be okay. That's the thing too. Yeah, I never feel that any of these characters are in real danger. Is, is another big stumbling block for me with, with this one in particular, but, but it is what it, it it's, it, it maintains the fun of it though. So I, I don't really care. It's just one of those things that I notice every time. <laughs> yeah. Every, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, no, agreed. Definitely agreed. Something, uh, you mentioned the scene where they're, yeah, trying to extract Lane from the armored vehicle what Which I do awesome. really love is that it's it's about a 15-minute sequence from the very beginning when you see all the uh, elements converge. So it's like by air, by sea, by motorbike, which might be a little bit of a Nolan thing as well that they ripped off. But I, I really liked that execution. And it, it begins and doesn't stop until 15 minutes later after you've seen the car crash, the amazing shot of inside the armored car. So Solomon Lane is being transported in this armored vehicle. The vehicle gets pushed by uh, Ethan Hunt's car. He pushes him off into the Seine or whatever. And the armored vehicle is rolling into the water and you get this inside shot of this wave of water as the armored vehicle turns over and is submerging this wave of water coming onto Solomon Lane or Solomon Lane, and you see him doing three huge breaths and then diving under this oncoming wave. And it looks so good and reminds me of some of the wave scenes in Blade Runner 2049, the amazing yes! of water. And I thought so, that too. Oh, it looks so good. And just a really special moment. And it looks the framing of it's really awesome too because the camera remains fixed with it, uh, like our point of view still being grounded like 
as though we're in in the vehicle as if, if it weren't tipped over but because of that you get this really strange and like really captivating and really like jarring angle of the water before it washes over him because the truck itself is underwater at an angle but we are still seeing it from that fixed perspective so it's a pretty incredible sequence really yeah and then you get all of this other shit and then tom cruise driving his motorcycle against oncoming traffic around the arc de triomphe which is (laughs) hilarious yeah how they had the budget to block off that entire like street or like throughway or whatever i'll never know but also there's the i mean there's the bathroom sequence of course that we got to talk about that's that's really great that it really shows us henry cavill like at full steam in this movie as well as Cruz. i mean they're both both handling this this choreography expertly and doing a great job um I did think it, it's funny how fragile this, obviously it is to illustrate the power of these men as they're brawling, but how fragile this bathroom seems to be, almost everything they touch shatters. Um, and I did also think it's funny when they get interrupted by um, this, these sort of like French party goers who come in and are, are singing um, what La Vienne Rose. It's like, it might as well have been Farah Jaka. Like it's. <laughs> What's the only oh, song that French people yeah. know? Oh, it must be Louvian Rose. <laughs> right. But the sequence itself, the, that whole that whole part is really incredible. And the the blocking and the choreography of that fight are really, really cool. And and pretty early into the movie. And then it flies right after that, right into um right into this uh sort of like VIP lounge area where we have another fight with like throwing knives and like people getting like hurled over tables and things like that. All of this drawing an awful lot of attention to themselves for a covert mission, but still an awesome sequence. So, so those, yeah, those are great uh, fight scenes that are, as you, as you mentioned, Dave, very close together, kind of a kind of a one, two punch, if you will. Mm. Um, But apparently the bathroom fight scene was shot over four weeks and was like choreographed extremely precisely And that you mentioned, yeah, so apparently the bathroom walls were all made out of very soft material to kind of uh, soften the uh, impact of of falling characters and people. Like styrofoam. Uh, But yeah, basically, I mean, you see the sinks are like tweaked by like a finger touch, you know, just like moves so slightly. But um, the the stuntman who plays uh, John Lark, Liang, Liang Yang, uh, is extraordinary, uh, and they, he was selected for his like really amazing um, stunt work. And according to, I, I don't remember where I pulled this, but apparently McQuarrie wanted the char- each character to have a different persona while fighting. So Walker is the hammer, which you can totally see in this in this scene where he just like built with just like brute force just starts throwing punches and like he actually is the one who throws Liang Yang through the uh the mirror versus the character of Lark that's supposed to be this very uh precise martial arts expert and kind of the the difference in those fighting styles makes a really really wonderful uh scene because they all have different approaches uh to how they're they're kicking and punching and um the stark white of the bathroom is such a great visual setup because you know that things are just going to get so gory and ultimately when they kill lark he like there's blood all over the floor 
Um, Ilsa Faust has come in and just shoots Lark after they've been, uh, he's been fighting with Ethan and Walker. There's just blood on the ground. And then the, the Parisian guys come back and they're like, oh, what happened? Uh, then but then the next week out where they fake the nosebleed to, to right. explain all the blood on the floor, which is really clever and pretty great. And so you get that same uh, sort of fight, like different types of fighting styles play out in the second fight scene in the nightclub where you're introduced to the White Widow, who's like kind of the number two villain in the movie, uh, played by... Um, Vanessa Kirby, who's really, really wonderful. I've loved following her career. She played Princess Margaret in The Crown, a very different role. But here she's just really, really um, just very sultry. And you don't know anything, basically, about her character. There was an Easter egg, apparently. She's the daughter of the character of Max, played by Vanessa Redgrave in the very first Mission Impossible. That's like, you wouldn't have gotten that. At all, like at all. She like talks about her mother in her introductory scene, but that's about it. But anyhow. But it's funny you say that because, yeah. I, yeah, I, go ahead. I didn't see her as a villain. I mean, I see her as, as she says, she's a, she's just a broker between kind of dueling international agencies or individuals and is just sort of like the financial uh yeah it's just broker between yeah. between uh between competing forces and and i think it's it's pretty clear as far as the the max thing goes max being yeah a character that appears in the first movie and that's her mother um i think is is, is something that she mentions or, or pretty explicitly points out at one point so it's it's a really nice tie-in but uh yeah an, an interesting character also in the sense that that like her her mother max they're both kind of eyeing up tom cruise the whole time like say um so <laughs> yeah um yeah okay great uh point that she's not she's not a villain she's more of a go-between and like yeah the broker um they'll apparently and, be in the next one too uh and also the one that was greenlit they just re- greenlit the eighth one as well so she's gonna be in those two as well oh shit i i really love her so i'm so excited um yeah that she'll that she'll be in some following ones. It's a cool um, character. Yeah. Yeah. A good performance. Yeah. She, she just, she's so command. She's such a commanding presence. Um, and I think does the most with a character that is not really fleshed out. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, she's like kind of edgy, sultry, like doesn't like her brother. <laughs> and then, like, is has these plutonium cores and that's basically all and and has an amazing butterfly knife in her in her like leg uh pantyhose or whatever the fuck it is the garter yeah her garter thank you (laughs) um but yeah so we're we're introduced to a few new characters but as connor mentioned not too many just enough to like make us you know like have some fresh fresh meat yeah, and Connor, I really like your note too early on that this this movie really kind of gives you a crash course in the series as it goes along. And and in a way that if you've seen the other movies doesn't feel like it slows things down. It just feels like a pretty natural uh continued explanation of who these characters are both as a reminder to devotees of the franchise and also an introduction for for uh, people seeing one of these movies in isolation for the first time. So I I think that's one of the rare that's a real strength of this movie that's pretty rare in action movies that try to do that and try to maintain franchise characters that it really doesn't waste time 
beating you over the head with who these people are really quickly establishes who they are within the foundation of the broader story and the franchise and then just moves on. And I think what also helps too is that it's, you know, the moments where they do talk about it, it's sort of like making fun of it. Like a few times they mentioned- A little bit, yeah. uh, um, Walker's like, do people really fall for this mask? Like, I think he says that the mask trick. I think he says that twice- and then the third time he says that he's the one who falls for it when uh, they do the switcheroo with Lane uh, to put the mask on him. So it's sort of like you're a little bit of kind of like exposition. You're poking fun at it. And then it's sort of that that mask specific kind of joke then turns its, itself on Walker as he's sort of duped into thinking that Lane is actually there. But in reality, it's Simon Pegg with Lane's face. They definitely that's a great point, Connor. They definitely use uh, they definitely use Walker as a character who sort of makes knowing references or, or, or sort of like pokes fun at, at some of the, the, the formula or some of the sort of go-to moves that the Mission Impossible franchise returns to, like the masks. There's another point where he is like, oh, this is your mission if you choose to, expect, uh, to accept it. Do you ever not choose? So it's like... Half making fun yeah. of it, half also being like, yeah, like, do you ever just not want to do a fucking mission? <laughs> I guess it technically sets it up so that you could choose not to. Um, but so, yeah, I think I think Walker fulfills a really nice, um, a nice role in in sort of being this outsider because he really is an outsider uh, to the team. You know, he doesn't really fit in per se with like uh, Benji and Luther who now have all the, you know, their rhythm with Ethan. Um, and so the movie uses, yeah, Walker as a, as an outsider to kind of highlight some. And do you mention that tired tropes of the, of the movie series? And he's also a, a good foil. I think it's kind of schmaltzy or, you know, Dave, you know, you're talking about the like one man, who cares about one person rather than the millions or he focuses on one life. It takes like, one well, man instead of the deep state to save us all. <laughs> so I think that is, well, I think that is a little corny and it's some, a few other things as well. I think that as a newcomer to this franchise, I thought that was like a really effective theme for the film to hang its hat on of where Cruz is set up as he saves Luther. He doesn't shoot, you know, handed it, you know, Luther, he saves Luther. The plutonium gets out. Um, there's this sort of imaginary imagined scene where he imagines what the heist will be like to get Lane out. And he's imagining, you know, the stakes are, you have to, you know, trap the police and you have to kill the police, the French police. And so it ends, it's kind of dream, it's not a dream, but it's just like him thinking about it ends with him shooting a cop. Later on, he has this moment. Does he shoot this cop when they're trying to escape with Lane, when everyone's hot on their tail, Walker grabs his gun behind him, ready to kill this ready to kill her, this police officer, um, with then Cruz trying to help her. So it's just sort of like, I think, really great contrasting moments. And also Walker's an assassin. He's a very burly assassin. <laughs> um, but he's he's a hitman, basically, when that's not what Hunt is. That's not really what the, from what I've learned, what really the IMF does. And so I just thought it was like a good, a good foil character. It's done simply, but sometimes the simple tricks are the are effective ones. One thing that frustrates me a little about that, though, is like there are so many moments where, <clears throat> among other people who are aware of Hunt's reputation or uh, or Cavill himself are, are saying like, hey, I heard all these stories about all these things you do, you've done. Is it true? And he's just like, if it makes your skin crawl, then it's true. 
But the whole of this movie explains to us that that's not who he is. And I, I don't know if that's supposed to be him putting up a front or if it's supposed to be... Weren't they talking other about that? Yeah, that was a reference to Solomon Lane. Mm-hmm. Is it? Okay. Okay, okay, fair enough. But I, at the same time, also, for Tom Cruise to be like this this international spy who, who you know, I, I don't know, who like who, who has to evade... Uh, identification and 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 being traced like he's leaving an awful lot of people behind alive and also running into like a funeral attended by hundreds of people including the french police he's driving with lane who is bound with a mass a, a hood over his head through the french streets uh the streets of paris as the police are driving right by with their sirens on it's like this is so sloppy ethan but that's what makes it funny that's the thing is it's so unbelievable more so than other villain he's not like a like a gritty born whatever the born ethan born or whatever the fuck jason born he's not like you know haunted by his past i mean he sort of is and they try to say that like give the flashbacks to his old wife and like you know episode or season or season three movie three but like Ultimately, at the end of the day, he he's pretty unscathed and he sort of swims by and like like evades capture is not really like harmed in any like significant way. But that's, I think, what adds to the sort of comedic like comedic elements of these movies (laughs) that ultimately he's just such a ridiculous character. It absolutely makes savior complex. It absolutely makes it more fun. I just think narratively it doesn't make any sense, but it does make it more fun. And this is a movie. These movies are after, at least after the first one, I think are, are more about fun and a ride than they are about the narrative necessarily. So I, I, again, I don't hold it against it. It's just one of those things that I can't also can't get past. I think that's a good point because the, yeah, Brian De Palma's, one definitely, as you said earlier, is very self-serious, but I think it does do a great job. I mean, it kills off like a third of the characters in the first 20 minutes of a movie. And right. so it really does a great job of like recognizing the line of work he's in and like the trauma he's going to experience and like how he can't get close to anyone because everyone's going to die anyways. And so that movie definitely drives home probably a more realistic depiction of the type of job and type of role he fulfills. Then everyone did away with like every director after De Palma just did away with trying to like really dig deep into what a character like Ethan Hunt would go through. And then Um, it it transforms the franchise into fun because again, as I mentioned before, like it doesn't feel like any of these characters are really all that threatened that we know it's going to work out because that's his team and they're the best. Um, but that's also what makes this to a degree more enjoyable and memorable than a lot of those other franchises. I mean, I think the born, the born series is pretty, is pretty good, but I think this is a good deal more fun and a good deal more memorable because of that. So yeah, it's not, it's not a weakness. Uh, again, I, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like this, this movie's messing up by being more dedicated to fun than, uh, realistic narrative. This one in particular does go so far out of its way to cement for us that this is the real world we live in that that for me, that becomes a little bit clumsy and awkward. Um, albeit, as I said, not really a problem, but just a note, I guess. I don't know. 
I don't really have a lot to say about this movie because it is just fun. Uh, so I was just kind of like hunting down things that I thought didn't make sense. No, I, 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 I definitely agree. As I was taking notes, I was like, yeah, the more times I watch this movie, like you'd think that I would understand the plot more, but it makes me understand it less because I'm like, wait, no, this makes no sense. Actually, this is a great transition to the fact that, so like after all of these where the plutonium core, uh, Solomon Lane, has, they tried to extract him, but then under the tunnels of, of London, it, ugh, there's just too much to explain. So I won't even explain it. The point is Solomon Lane is loose again. And so are the plutonium cores. Uh, and so is Walker. So it turns out Walker's bad. As Connor mentioned, Benji dressed up as Solomon Lane in a mask to get Walker to have a conversation with him and admit that he's part of the apostles. Walker was tricked, but then it turns out that when the CIA brought soldiers in to arrest him, then he actually, then they were like soldiers who were part of the apostles. And then everybody turns in and then fucking Alec Baldwin, who we haven't even talked about, which is fine, dies. (laughs) And then, so like a bunch of, action is skipped because somehow Solomon Lane gets a control of the plutonium cores again, which after repeated watches of this movie, I still don't understand how he got a hold of them. Can you guys fill me in on that? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) See, big, big question mark. Nobody knows. Or also how Ethan and his team, after being disavowed by both the IMF and CIA, manages to get from London to uh, Kashmir. He's got a nice bank account. He can get that flight. Yeah. So they are headed to the Kashmir province and they are going to get these. Pl- they've, ide- they've located the plutonium cores to this va- this important valley and this river valley. And then it turns out Ethan runs into his old wife <laughs> uh, who we're introduced to in episode three. I'm going to keep calling them episodes because it's basically like a TV show. <laughs> Uh, played by Michelle Monaghan. Yes, Connor, or Monaghan. I thought, that, I thought that was a pretty fun twist. And then I, I guess so there's a scene where they're running through London and Henry Cavill shows Hunt a picture. It was a white woman. I, I thought it could have been Rebecca Ferguson. Like, it's through the bar. I was like, I don't know who this, this white woman is in this picture. It's fine. It's his guardian angel. And that's how they get the clue about, like, how she got there through Walker. And I was like, I thought that was, like, a, a pretty nice reveal and the sort of, like, the husband comes in and her new husband's like, hi, who are you? And sort of like, oh, I bet if I knew these movies before, there'd be like, this would, this moment would hit, hit a little differently, but I thought that was a good, it's like, oh, like a, a fun little wrinkle to have at the and end her of the new movie. Hu- her new husband, who is the most comically out of the loop person I've ever seen. In <laughs> well, it's crazy how close to parody Mission Impossible Fallout gets. We just talked about yeah. the London scene where it's like a turn and a twist and a twist and then a twist. And uh, it's like, it. I think that's a success is how close it gets to parody, but it's so earnest in it's like, these things are kind of silly, but we're just going to roll with it, but not push it to that parody stretch that I think it's this kind of balance that it's hard to do, but I think works really well. And I'm, you know, I thought it was a good twist that his wife was there, ups the emotional stakes for Ethan and for as a new viewer I was like oh his wife's there too oh he that's why it's at the camp oh this plan is coming together as silly as that is it's for me it was a satisfying silly plan 
I mean, Cotter, I think that's a really good read, actually. I, I mean, there's even when they get there, like they they get to this camp and they're searching for these explosive devices. Um, the whole the whole place is it's a medical facility, so there's X-ray equipment in everywhere. So there's there's no way to get a clear idea of where it is based on um, radiation detection. But then it turns out it's just like it's unguarded this explosive device and in plain sight and elevated and in plain sight and in plain sight, <laughs> and it's just like what. And and also when they're defusing the bomb, when uh, Luther, Bing Rames, and uh, Monaghan, uh, Cruz's ex-wife, are defusing the bomb, they're being so chummy about it, and like it's like have some respect for the gravity of this situation. But but that's not what this movie is doing. This movie like is is winking and telling you like, hey, they know each other. This is kind of fun, even though the world might be about to end. So yeah, I think you're right. I think this movie does have an undercurrent of parody and satire, almost genre satire while also still maintaining itself as a fun and engaging movie. So yeah, I I don't know if that's their intention, but I think that you're onto something there. I think it also just reveals like the fact, essentially the whole Luther, Ilsa trying to, and, and Benji trying to get the right wires, trying to figure out all the coordination while Ethan is tasked with chasing August Walker who is fleeing the base camp because he knows he's basically triggered the plutonium cores to explode and he has to get the fuck out of there. Ethan recognizes that he's leaving and goes to chase him via helicopter. My, the thing is, is it's like the action is so different as far as energy level between what Ving Ben or like Luther Benji and Ilsa are doing versus what Ethan is doing. They just need them to do be doing something so that the movie can set up this like amazing helicopter chase scene. And so I think it sort of is showing its cards as like, okay, well we need these characters. We can't just drop these characters, but we've spent so much time and energy thinking about this amazing helicopter sequence is, that's about to happen. There needs to be some balance. That's how I read. Like, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it feels a little Return of the Jedi. Oh my god, the, like, the <laughs> lasers coming! Oh, that was so fucking well, Star Wars. Well, and in terms of like, we have three endings happening. Like Star oh. Wars Episode Four has one ending. Empire has two plots. Jedi has three simultaneous plots right. happening, and so it felt a little like. You're, I, I don't know if I, as a, as a hypothetical armchair screenwriter, had a better trick up my sleeve to navigate that ending, but it does it does feel a little like, but I want to go back to the helicopter. Like, please take I me thought, back there. I thought you were referring to when one of the helicopters starts shooting blue lasers out of it in a valley, and I was like, oh, this looks very... Lit. Okay, when I mean lasers, I mean like bullets but but with like a blue streak and i was like this looks exactly like star wars are you talking about the machine gun the like high caliber Excuse machine me, thank gun you now? machine gun but it's like it's blue and it looks and they're they're moving pretty fast through like a very uh narrow cavern and it definitely looks like star wars i mean that the helicopter sequence is flat out incredible uh it, it's one of the most harrowing action sequences I've ever seen. Just detach the thing from the bottom. Or I think it's, and what makes this, it's like, why do they have two helicopters? They have a second helicopter so Tom Cruise can climb up the thing. And so it's like those plot things I just think are kind of funny. Well, the ones carrying the payload, 
Um, and the other is, well, yeah, that doesn't explain why they would still have two. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and so it's like, it's, I think that just kind of adds the charm of it. it's like, well, we need the second helicopter because Tom Cruise has to climb a helicopter because that's the cool action set piece you want to do in Kashmir. And also, so they could set up a decoy Henry Cavill. There's actually a really, I, I oh, find yeah. it a funny moment when Cruise thinks he's identified Henry Cavill by his mustache gets into the helicopter they have this two minute stare and he's like fuck you're not august walker and it's just like this henry cavill look-alike and who he has to kill anyways it, it just it feels like a moment out of the naked gun it, yeah <laughs> and it's yeah it's such a great moment too where like that guy the, the guy's response is pretty much it's just like this weird stare of like Wait, what are you doing here? Yeah, and, and at, at the same time, Tom Cruise is like, wait, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be... Okay, wait a minute. Although, well, I don't know. I guess he doesn't mistake him for Henry Cavill because he knows that Henry Cavill is in the one that already took off versus the one he climbed onto. But I think but it feels thinks, that way. <laughs> well, he, I'm pretty sure he, he gets... Or, like, he thinks that he's found... Well, no, Walker. because he sees, he sees Walker get into the one before, and it takes off before he chases after the other one, knowing that he has to chase him. Isn't there the line, though, of saying, oh, did you find Walker? No, I didn't find it. I have to get to another uh, helicopter. I guess. I my, don't know. My I intention like, was, hmm. my intent, my thought was that the decoy, quote-unquote decoy Walker, is who Cruz saw thinking it was the actual Henry Cavill Walker. Unless I just misread, you know, thought too much about the scene. Who knows? There's a decoy walker. We don't know. It's like you know. This is this is like hide the ball in the, the cup details game. Don't matter. Hide the Henry Cavill under the cups magic game. <laughs> and the scene where the helicopter goes down the clouds, up in the clouds, and the payload. He tries to drop the payload on the other helicopter, and it misses. Like just a Dave, you said harrowing, and that's really the perfect word for it. The setting is beautiful. Uh, I, the cashmere scenes were filmed partly in New Zealand, partly in Norway. But all of the backdrop is stunning, like these lush green mountains and then the snow caps. And there's a little, there's some CGI snow. I definitely was like, hashtag, is it real? Especially when the helicopter crashes. But yeah, so in hot pursuit. And then we get some wonderful body horror when the helicopters crash the other pilots are dead tom cruise has been doing his own flying he learned how to fly a helicopter for these scenes so that there could just be one camera focused on like him simulating crashes which i believe that a lot of the expressions that he has while he's trying to fly this helicopter are are real as he's really trying to you know figure out what's going on but so the the helicopters crash in the snow. It's only Walker and and Hunt, and then um, the collision sprays oil and like chemicals so all like over. Like helicopter fuel, yeah. Hel- yeah, the fuel all over Walker's face, and you just get this nasty, nasty chemical burn vision of of the character, and it, it's it's some great. And that begins actually a series of like wonderfully gruesome, like Henry Cavill, <laughs> like his body being brutalized <laughs> scenes. Um, so yeah, the chemical and there's some great like helicopter collision and like 
off of all of these insane precipices and, and getting caught in these rocky caverns. All the while, basically, Ethan has to get the key from Walker to um, disarm the the plutonium cores. And it's kind of the will he, won't he? Obviously, he will. I love when the hook, so there's this like grappling hook that's like holding one of the helicopters up while Ethan and Walker are trying to climb back up the rope off this cliff. And the hook dislodges from this rock plummets down and hits Walker's face right. And you don't really see the impact on his face. It's kind of a quick shot, but the best detail is when Walker's body hits the, the stone, you see the blood splatter at the bottom as he rolls off. And it's like, they didn't need to do that, but for some reason they chose to do it and and it's fucked, but (laughs) It's a nice moment of finality. It's like, yeah, this time after after all of this, after he's been sprayed with uh, the superheated uh, helicopter fuel after the fist fight, after they're grappling on this mountain, now he's really dead. So it's, he's, it's over. He's toast. Yeah. There was some CGI rock, which I didn't really appreciate. I was like, can't you just get that hook to script? I, I didn't like that. But <laughs> it's a it's a very, very good scene. And then obviously we have a nice uh, homage to Mission Impossible 2 as Ethan is climbing up this rock face uh, and trying to to fucking time the disarming of the bomb just as just in the nick of time. It's yeah, it's all obviously down to the wire. And uh, and he does it. And there's this nice little uh, moment where you think, as uh, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, the sunburst looks like it could have been a nuclear explosion, but it was just. A beautiful vision of the uh, of the sky. Well, specifically too, because the movie opens with a, a dream sequence um, that Ethan Hunt has about um, what they're like on a beach, and he's uh, he's like marrying or remarrying his ex wife. Um, and do you and, love your wife? Will yeah, you have Solomon her Lame. To hold, to treasure, to betray. <laughs> but uh, but we get. We see a nuclear explosion in this movie and what it stylizes it to look like, which is exactly what the sun looks like initially when we're treated to that shot. So it does set you up for the established and already, yeah, already visually established expectation that like, oh shit, he failed. This is a nuclear bomb. But then the nice, you know, just continues to pan and we see that he's just hanging there and it's actually just the sun. So it's it's a really nice, uh, a really nice book ending for the movie. Uh, visually and aesthetically, that's that's really really strong and really pronounced and really obvious, but very very well shoehorned in. The simple tricks are sometimes the best ones, and it's it's a movie too that really does a good job of like you know it, it as as sloppy as I would argue parts of the narrative are uh, does a really great job of like returning to ideas or bringing back references to things earlier established within the film. Um, that being one of them among, you know, a whole bunch of others. So I, I think, yeah, as, as a movie that wants you to have fun, it does a great job. Uh, and, and as a movie that wants you to piece together the general broad strokes via those kind of visual repetitions and elliptical connections, it does a really good job. One connection that I really appreciated was at the beginning of the film, when they describe who the syndicate is, 
I think this is on the CNN broadcast, the fake CNN broadcast. Like, oh, they like release a smallpox virus in Kashmir, and you're like, well, why? Why would they? Like it, that, the idea of this smallpox virus being released in this region is brought up a few times, but never like reflected on critically. And then when they're in the helicopter flying there, they're like, why is there a medical camp here? And then I was like, oh, the smallpox is like that was there for a reason. And then it's revealed that it was the white. It's like just that was another, I thought, moment seeded two hours ago that is then paying off in the final like 20 minutes. Which connects back to Dave's point, which was like, on one hand, the movie tries to elevate Solomon Lane as this sort of like man with a vision for like uh, revealing the hypocrisies of like, yeah, organizations like the CIA by like bringing about a bunch of suffering when really what he wants to do is just mastermind like a plan to fuck over Ethan Hunt. <laughs> and if they have just remained with keeping a, or like having a villain be very personally vengeful and not try to like tie him up into a bunch of statements about like you know military organizations and stuff like that it could have been a little bit more streamlined but <laughs> it's it does become sort of a like uh i'm gonna get that bastard ethan hunt and i guess i'm gonna destroy the world that's a bonus but i'm gonna get him i i mean i, I like a very um yeah like sort of vindictive like per like personally affronted vindictive villain that like doesn't really have any other <laughs> purpose and, but. and lane's plans are pretty well laid out i mean like step by step you can really kind of trace them if you watch the movie more than once uh right down to like you know that the smallpox release in that area is obviously to bring his wife into that area which again is uh you know international terrorism as a, a front to particularly screw over ethan hunt but but still, it makes sense as far as everything goes and that being the epicenter of the big event, everything. So so it's all laid out there. I, well, I, just, I think the motivations are a little questionable, but uh, but all oh, the are, are logically connected. I, I also appreciated that the plan is to basically nuke a glacier to, tam to contaminate the drinking water for a third of people who live on Earth. Right. It's like it's not a blue laser shooting into the sky. It's not some gas explode. Like, it's not all these tropes that have been done to death in superhero movies and action movies. It's sort of like, this feels like, oh, this is, if you were going to, like, fuck over the world and be a terrorist, this is actually, like, a pretty, like, interesting plan to try to execute. Aside from the personal stakes, like, if this was, if he was totally professional about it, this is, like, a pretty clever way to, like, fuck over a third of the world at minimum. Yeah, bioterrorism really is what it amounts yeah. to. So I thought that was like a clever villain angle that was like, yeah, just like 10% extra brain power went into making that decision. And I appreciated it. Well, that's, that's Mission Impossible Fallout. Well, yeah. We do, kinda, we do kind of get that ending too, uh, where, where, you know, um, Hunt has been picked up by the team after the fact. And he's returned to the hot, to like a, that hospital, uh, camp, um, that medical treatment camp. And, um, it's showered with adoration by a lot of people in a, a nice sun sunbathed uh, setting. Uh, his his former wife's basically saying like, "It's okay that that I lost you because I know you're out there protecting all of us." And then uh, Elsie or Ilsa is kind of showing up and being like, "Hey, we're kind of equals and we're both spies, so maybe we could have a thing." And then Sloane being like, uh, again being like. It's good that he's out there because we're monsters. And so it, it is sort of this uh, very uh, self-congratulatory and valorizing uh, ending for Ethan Hunt. Uh, but, you know, 
the movie's got to end somehow, and he did save the world along with his team. But uh, yeah, it's, it's fair enough. But it is a, it is a lot. It's just so ridiculous. I love it. Like I don't think anyone else can do it, but Tom Cruise. Like I don't know who. I don't know who is that combination of like, like self like self-aggrandizing with a shit ton of money, a lot of connections and pretty talent. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know, that's Tom, that's mission impossible. Last notes I have are over Henry Cavill's mustache. And there was a huge mm-hmm. battle between justice league and mission impossible because he grew the mustache for mission impossible. And then he had to do reshoots for justice league. And they were like, Oh, you need to get rid of the mustache. Obviously, Superman doesn't have this like scruff and this stash. But then uh, Mission Impossible won the the battle and was like, no, no, Justice League, you're going to CGI out this mustache and we get to keep it. <laughs> Zack Snyder will fix it later. Uh, yeah, he'll do it in post-production. Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon will fix it. Oh, it was Joss, yeah. Yeah, I, I know, but Zack stills. Snyder fixed the Joss Whedon thing, which I still think wasn't great, but, you know, it's it's still a fix over the original. Oh, I, I would, saw some... I, sorry, I was going to say, I would love to see the mustache cut. Like, there's oh, footage totally. there. There is filmed footage of them on set with, with the big mustache, and from the, the Whedon cut, there is quite a bit of Superman that they refilmed. And so the mustache film, the mustache prints are living somewhere. And I really hope that sometime in our lifetime that gets leaked onto the internet and we can see Henry Cavill, full Superman get up with a giant mustache. It's such a great look. And it makes me mm-hmm. laugh even more because part of me is like they cast him because he was so he had such like a like sculpted like Pre, like hulky presence, but yet they dress him up in this drab khaki sort of ill-fitting outfit, which is hilarious. And then they cover his face in a mustache and beard. And it's like, it's such a funny, it's like, did you want him to be sexier than Tom Cruise or did you not? But it like, it's, it, it works because it's such an odd way to dress this character and like present it uh, yeah it's just it it really it really tickles me his whole look in this movie his yeah it's just like office space outfits the entire movie those shirts are a little just, tight for a man of his friend his build yeah yeah and he's like he's, yeah he's like i think it's just another way to be a foil to ethan hunt's look Truly, yeah, yeah. His like impeccably cut suits, yeah, and just his like cufflinks. Unlike a lot of the other villains throughout the franchise, he's not—he's not like sort of a removed stationary villain. He's very much like bucking up against Tom Cruise the whole time. Um, so in that sense, I think it's yeah, it's it's the right move, albeit a little bit uh, visually strange as far as wardrobe. So bizarre. Well, I think bizarre is a pretty uh, great. note to end our discussion of mission possible fallout because it's it's i think it's bizarre the trajectory of tom cruise's career is bizarre tom cruise is a bizarre person and it's just mission impossible is just something i will treasure i think forever and i'm so excited for mi7 and eight and it might 
go the way of Fast and Furious and just keep coming back forever. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. This was a great discussion. Um, I am always... Ha oh, I have my Mission Impossible notebook that I kept all of my my notes in um, to talk with you guys about. And uh, yeah, that, I believe, wraps up Grab Bag Month. Yeah, we've done it. it. We've done it. And we're so excited to not only wrap up Grab Bag, but roll into a very special episode that's coming up uh, next week. And um, am I allowed to say what it is? Have we said what it is? It's a secret. Yeah. Let's keep it suspenseful. It's under wraps. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be quite um, an occasion, let's say. It's going to be really yep. festive, and it's going to be a secret. So, And we're um, going to have a special guest. And we're going to have a special guest. I'm so excited. Yeah, so stay tuned next week. Um, and as always, we're so uh, happy to be a part of the Movie John Network. And so check out all those uh, other wonderful podcasts. They're a part of the Movie John family. And um, again, as always... Send us any messages, emails. We're on our socials, on Instagram. Just let us know your thoughts. Let us know any movies you want us to talk about. Or your responses to any of our insights and stupid observations about movies. Um, that's It's been real. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful whatever. And we will catch you uh, for a very special episode. Bye-bye, everyone.